Mythopoets, a podcast where we look at tarot, magic, and witchcraft through a mythopoetic lens. I'm your host, Amanda Yates Garcia, and this podcast is produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. If you'd like to support this project, consider joining our coven for rituals, community, tarot practice, magic, and more. Thanks for flying with us. We're glad you're here. Listeners, welcome back to part two of the Knight of Cups. Now, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you might want to go back and do that because last week we gave you kind of the nitty gritty basics of the card, the Knight of Cups, like what to do if it comes up in your reading, what the correspondences are, just kind of the essence. And so if you're like, I need to know straight away what this means, you're going to want to listen to that episode. Then today we go in deep to more of the mythopoetic meaning of the Knight of Cups, and we go deep into the story of the Grail Knight, and we talk about the meaning, we analyze it a bit, we drift around in it, we get very languorous with it, and we give you some study questions because it's kind of complex tale. And then we also go into rituals that you can do and use when the themes that are worked with in this card come up in your own life. I think you're really going to dig it because, I don't know, our listeners tend to really love mythology and storytelling. And boy, do you get it in this episode. So hope you enjoy. Hello, listeners. This is Carolyn, producer of Between the Worlds, just here to announce that our new workshop, Queen of Cups, Chants, Prayers, and Invocations, is now available on our website. Here is Amanda's take on why this material can be really helpful for your magical practice. Using your voice is the easiest way to access spirit. I believe that music is the the food of the gods, we might say. And using chants, using prayer, using invocations is just such a powerful way to create an atmosphere of enchantment and magic around you. You can use it to cultivate your voice, to cultivate your creativity. You can use it to focus your energy. You can use it to call in the essence and the spirit of the things that you're desiring in your life. You can use it for healing purposes. And it all starts with prayers, chants, and invocations. So I highly encourage you to check that out. If you want to participate, the link for that is in the show notes, or you can go to betweentheworldspodcast.com forward slash shop. So now we get to the reason why it took us so long to come out with this episode. I really, as many of you know, am really into the Arthurian legends. I just find them really compelling and they just appeal to my romantic nature and all of that. But they're really bottomless and swirly, much like this card itself. There's so many different versions of the stories. They're very cryptic. So it took me a long time to kind of piece together this story in the way that I wanted to tell it. And yeah, I feel like I could even spend another 20 years kind of polishing it in some library somewhere, some tower library somewhere in like the Scottish Highlands or something. But alas, I did not have the time to do that. So let's just go with what I have here. Quick note slash trigger warning. I did want to just mention to you that this episode does mention sexual violence briefly in the context of uh, the legend of the Holy Grail. So I just wanted you to, to know and be a little forewarned, but it only lasts for a few moments. 
For me, the Knight of Cups is one of the most compelling cards in the deck because it tells the story of Percival, the Grail Knight of Arthurian legend. Now, before I get too deep into that tale, you should know that the quest for the Holy Grail is one of the founding myths of Western civilization, or perhaps even civilization itself, since the problems that civilization causes are not just Western. Where we find civilization, we also often find slavery, oppression, and the destruction of the environment. We certainly find economic inequity, for sure. What's interesting about the Grail myth is not that it is a valorization of Western civilization. It's not saying, look how great we are. The hero has destroyed the dragon. As we know, the dragon is like the pagans, right? But rather, this knight is saying, here are the ways that our civilization is sick. And here is the medicine we need to regenerate and heal. And that medicine is love and care. So based on this myth, we might say that the Knight of the Holy Grail, the Knight of Cups, is the bringer of medicine needed to heal our civilization's soul sickness. I'm going to say that again. The Knight of Cups is the bringer of medicine needed to heal our civilization's soul sickness. This card is so much about medicine, so much about healing, so much about the soul or the essence or the life force itself, how it comes through us. Now, that makes this card, you know, way deep, dudes. It really asks us to think about what we care about and how we're going about finding that in this life. Now, if we're not just using the tarot mostly as a dating app, (laughs) which, I mean, let's be honest, most of us do. I certainly do. Whenever I'm dating someone new, I'm like, uh, pull the cards over and over trying to get the answer I want. But we might also then see the Knight of Cups as a bringer of medicine for our own personal souls. So this card is speaking on both the collective and the individual level. So the story of the Grail Knight Percival is based in Arthurian legend, as I've said, but his story is also common to folk heroes throughout Celtic lands, ranging from England to Germany, Brittany, Gaul. Also, similar stories have roots in folktales across your Asia, going back all the way to Babylon. Some scholars associate the story with the Knights Templar and various different initiation stories. So there are versions that include the medieval German epic Parseval by Wolfram von Eschenbach in the 13th century, the Welsh legend of Peridor, the French Le Conte du Graal, by Chrétien de Troyes, and T.S. Eliot's A Wasteland in the early 20th century, and many more. In other words, the Grail myth is old. It's told in fragments and decaying leather-bound manuscripts over a thousand years. And sometimes the names and the details of the story change, so it's not really easy to piece together a straightforward telling of this story at this point. But the first known version of the tale comes from the 6th century. And it's very likely that the oral versions of the story are much older and folded in with pre-Roman Druidic lore as well. Because this is a, a myth about the death and rebirth of vegetation. This is the story of a hero or a knight, a person, tasked with restoring life to a barren earth. And this is a common motif in folk tales. And that is because originally it was likely to be an allegory of some kind, an allegory for some kind of ritual that people did in collectivity. And the rituals meant to be acted out as a means to restore the fertility of the land. That might be something you want to try if you were to get the Knight of Cups in one of your readings. So in this tale, and actually in all Arthurian legend, 
The flourishing of the plant world is linked to spiritual and moral growth in humans. They're inseparable. And by participating in the story, the plants, the elemental beings such as water, rivers, they teach us to seek out wisdom and ask the right questions and also to listen carefully to the answers. What makes it especially relevant to the common era is that it's also a story about ancestral mistakes, familial legacies, breaking lineages of trauma and harm and restoring balance. This is something that I know that a lot of us are thinking about a lot in our own lives, how to restore balance to our lineage, both on a political level, on a widespread level, but also within the microcosm of our own families. So the Knight of Cups is on a spiritual journey to develop their intuition and gain deeper understanding of the world around them. The journey of the Knight of Cups is to become a being who is capable of being in deep relationship, which is something that a lot of our families did not teach us how to do. I know mine didn't. This is something that I've had to be on a quest to be able to do throughout my life. And so we might be thinking about that quest to be able to be relational, to be connected to one another, to be intimate, to be capable of intimacy, despite the missteps of our previous generations. And that that is like a lifelong pursuit. And that is really what this card is about. Now, according to Mara Freeman, who is a guest of this podcast, check out Between the Worlds episode 21, Ancestral Magic of the Ancient Celts with Mara Freeman. Great episode, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Grail stories arose when religion in the West had been dominated by patriarchal, warmongering god forms of fire and thunder for thousands of years. The Grail stories emerge out of a longing for wholeness and balance within our collective psyche. Because in longing for the grail, we are longing for nurturance. We're longing for relationship, connection. We're longing for harmony. We're longing for what some might call the divine feminine. But if you find that term too distracting, you could also think of it as the lunar or the yin or the ecological, the respect for the land. We we might even be longing for love itself. Because fundamentally, The grail is love. And the gift the grail knight brings us is to remind us that we are all longing for love. The Knight of Cups speaks to us the saying, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and to be loved in return. Now, I invite you to think about that in the context of your own life right now. In what ways are you learning to be loving? And in what ways are you learning to be loved? If the Holy Grail, if any of the cups really, since the story of the cups is the story of the search for the Holy Grail, if the Holy Grail, the Ace of Cups, contains the archetypal force of love within it and Our night is seeking this force. Where might you look within your own life right now to drink of this cup? To be able to call in that loving force. And and I, I mean this on a really practical level. Not just as a kind of lofty spiritual idea, but as something that we can touch. Something physical, something sensory. It might be inviting proximity to the people that we love. It might be going to water, bathing in it, speaking to it, blessing ourselves with it. Now, archetypal images, they pull themselves forth from the unconscious. And the unconscious is that infinite realm, the void, the Plutonian void of which nothing can be spoken because nothing exists within it, right? It's a a state of pure potentiality. And archetypes come through in stories and in images. We spoke about that in our last episode, Between the Worlds, episode 80, Art, Magic, and the Imagination with Robert Allen. Another great episode, (laughs) if I do say so myself. And if you want to go into 
uh, Western esotericism like super deep, go to that episode. Now, the image of the Holy Grail is an archetypal image, and it is the Ace of Cups. The Ace of Cups is the Holy Grail, and it's a transitive image, meaning it's bringing something between two places. So the archetype draws forth something from the realms beyond and brings it into this world. So trans in the sense that it crosses boundaries and borders. And the Holy Grail carries the archetypal force of love out of the infinite void into the material world here, where we live so meanly and violently without it, but where it is possible for us to find it. And love is here in the world. So one of the reasons why I'm speaking so in-depth about all of this is because it, it really does enrich your ritual practices. It really does enrich the meaning of your readings and your relationship to the cards when you have this deep understanding of what the cards are really speaking to. And also the objects, the materia of magic in your life, on your altars, that you may be touching, that you, that you may be experiencing in your life. The more you know about it, the more powerful your understanding, the more you are able to make magic, which means to transform the world according to your delight, basically. In most versions of the story, the grail is located somewhere in the castle of the Fisher King who is an aged monarch with a festering wound to the thigh, which is, you know, thigh is a euphemism for penis. Side note, old in folktale language often means that the character has pagan roots. So an old king may be a pagan king, for instance. And fish and gods related to fish are very old mythic symbols across cultures, most often related to life and the preservation and origins of life. In mystery cults, fish are often the holy food, and injuries to the sex organs in myths and fairy tales often symbolize that the fertility of the land is in peril. In fact, when the Knight of Cups finds the Fisher King, the king is presiding over a wasteland, the same wasteland referred to by the 20th century poet T.S. Eliot in his book of the same name, where he links the wasteland to the horrors of the First World War, and where it also becomes a kind of ecological prophecy of destruction, and hopefully for us, redemption. And for me, that is what's most compelling about this story. It's an ecological prophecy, and it also contains within it the potential or the seeds of the healing that could take place in order to rectify the destruction that we're seeing that's already happened and that will continue happening if nothing is done. In some languages, the word for fisher is somehow the same word for sinner. So this is a king in need of redemption. While it might say in the Bible that we are born into original sin because Eve took a bite of a forbidden apple— More realistically, the sin we are actually born into is the violence, the genocide, colonialism, enslavement, exploitation, the destruction of the environment wrecked by our ancestors since the first murder, since the first war. It's the family violence and sexual abuse. It's the exile from our places of safety. It's the greed, it's the theft, it's the betrayal that has kept people from the resources that they've needed. It's all the wounds that percolate through the stories that we are born into. Stories that began long before we came into this world. So I know the word sin is, you know, problematic, it's stressful. Many of us, you know, have bad relationships with it because of our childhood upbringing. But again, this story comes to us in a time where we're transitioning from the pagan to the Christian worldview. And I think it's helpful to understand then sin is essentially as like epigenetic trauma that we're born into and that is very likely to 
encourage us to create more harm if we don't find some way to heal it. Therefore, this defining story of Western civilization is about the soul of a Fisher King that has been tarnished by a family legacy of patriarchal and colonial violence, and the Holy Grail is the only thing that can heal his soul wound, which means that the journey of the Grail Knight is a collective journey, our collective journey, to redeem the sins and to heal the wounds that we were born into even if they aren't our fault. The destiny of the Fisher King and the Grail Knight are always bound up together. And sometimes this makes me think of the stories of the fathers and sons within my own family and the quest of the sons to heal their father's wounds, the wounds that the fathers inflicted upon them. I know that my brother had a lot of wounds as a result of the actions that my father took. Whenever I'm with my father, he can't stop talking about his own father and how he wanted love from his father and wasn't able to get it. And I'm sure on and on. I know a lot of men who have been painfully affected by their father's wounds. And in many ways, their destiny, their work in life is to heal themselves so that they can be in relation to the larger world. And of course, this wounding is not just limited to people who identify as men. The story of patriarchal and colonial violence touches every being on the earth in some way. It's also important to note that from a literary perspective, these legends are talking about kings and queens as metonyms. They're not people who rule by taking lands from the peasants and then demanding taxes and fealty. That's not what we're talking about here, even though we're using that word. Instead, in fairy tales, we can think of the royalty as potent beings. So kings, queens, these are potent beings who personify the power of the land. So we could just say potent being instead of queen or king, but in fairy tales, that's just not how it's worked. The fortunes of these potent beings are very much tied to the fate of the people and the land itself. And that's something we can consider in tarot as well, that the kings and queens, the knights and pages are potent, powerful beings, the condensed spirit of the land itself appearing to us in a form that can speak to us and can ask things of us and be disappointed in us and challenge us and touch us and guide us. So they're like tutelary beings. So a potent being would be like the spirit of a wood or the spirit of a mountain or the spirit of a river. And it's coming and it's speaking to you. So this makes the legend of the Holy Grail a collective story, but also a personal journey of redemption as well, because as we shall see, it's something each of us must do within our own souls and lives. Though, as is always the case in fairy tales and myths, we do not do this work on our own, but we have a host of helpers. Anyways, I mentioned there are many different versions of the legend of the Holy Grail pieced together from various retellings over the centuries, spanning across continents. And the story I'm about to tell you is my own version here, though I do my best to try and stay true to the spirit of the originals, but you know, don't base your graduate dissertation on my version because I'm blending all these different versions together to make it make more sense in just a short period of time. But I do want to begin by thanking Angelus Arian, Juliet Sharman Burke, Liz Green, Pauline Mataroso, Mar Freeman, Ralph Metzer, Jesse Whetstone, Christine Payne Towler, and Jack Crawford all of whose works I lean on heavily in telling this story for this episode, which are linked in the show notes. So without further ado, the story of the Grail Knight, Percival, and his encounter with the Fisher King. Percival was a sweet, bright-eyed child. His father was a king who, along with his six older sons, died in honor wars fought to establish their glory. Percival was too young to fight. After his father and brothers died in combat, 
Percival's mother took him, the women, the children, and the men who'd refused to fight from what remained of their court into a mountain forest where they lived in a remote and hidden castle. In effort to protect Percival from the same fate as his brutal father, his mother, the queen, didn't speak to him of his father or of knights or of battle and wouldn't let him touch any weapons except a small hunting spear, which he became very skilled at using. One day, when he was 16, he was out hunting with his spear, looking down into the valley below, the valley thick with trees and fresh green meadows and a silver ribbon of river passing through it, and he saw a shining being riding a white horse through the water. Percival ran back home in amazement and told his mother about what he'd seen and asked her what it was. And his mother, of course, knew exactly what he'd seen. A knight, all dressed in polished armor that glowed and sparkled in the sun. But terrified that her beloved son would catch a passion for knighthood and leave her to meet his death, and believing that losing this last person who she loved would kill her in grief— She told Percival that what he'd seen must have been a visiting angel from another world. To her disappointment, Percival immediately replied that he wanted to be an angel too. And he pleaded that she would let him go out in search of this fabulous being to see if he could become one as well. She resisted his request as long as she could, but eventually she gave in as he was 16 and aching to go. So she let him go and bundled him up on an old nag with apples in his satchels and a wool blanket and a ruby ring that had belonged to his father. But before he left, she made him swear to follow these precepts. The precepts that, no matter what forces try to seduce him into battle, that he always respect his spiritual traditions. That whenever he met anyone who was in trouble, especially women and children, that he should do everything he could to help them, that he should always treat women with respect and never try to coerce them, that he should be civil and courteous to all beings, and that if he was hungry or in need, he should take what he needed, but never take more than that, that he should give freely of what he had to others, and that if he did all of this, then he would indeed become a good and worthy knight. Before I go on, it's important to note that it's Percival, the true knight of the Holy Grail's mother, who gives him all the sage advice. So once again, the knight is in service of the lady, the queen, the grandmothers, the goddess of creation and care, etc. And he's given clear instructions on how to go about his life in service of that lineage. Deviating from these principles would make him an errant knight, a corruption. And you'll notice that all of these precepts are essentially about how to be a person who actively cares for their community, which is what the knights in tarot are here to do, in my humble opinion. And in particular, the Knight of Cups is here in service of the relational health of the land and community. Okay, back to the story. Percival took leave of the forest where he was raised, and the soft trot of his nag eventually overtook the sound of his mother's weeping, and he wound his way out into the world. Having no money, he came upon a willow tree and made himself a suit of wicker armor out of the willow branches before he entered the nearest town. Having never been to a town before, Percival was so naive and inexperienced that when the townsfolk laughed and pointed at him for his useless armor, calling him a fool, he just thought they were happy people and marveled at how joyous they were and thought to himself, a fool must just be some kind of knight I haven't met yet. Eventually he comes upon a castle, which with his inexperience with monarchy he thinks is a church. And he goes inside and he sees that there's an elaborate table set with rich foods and a maiden who's the princess of this castle, but he doesn't know that, sitting over it. And he helps himself to as much of the food as he needs, but as his mother instructed, he takes no more than that. And the princess is somewhat shocked at his presumption, asks him where he's from, and he says that he's from the mountains and the wilderness. And they exchange rings and a kiss, and then he departs to make himself worthy of her. 
He travels and travels, accumulating many stories, eventually entering the forest of Arroy, the forest of adventure, an enchanted forest. He rides through a maze of green into the light of an open glade and following a stream over a bed of golden gravel where the water was so thin and clear that you couldn't tell where it ended and the pure air began. His nag sloshed through the water while silvery fish darted around her hooves to and fro like sparks of light before his coming. Percival was so in awe of the beauty of this forest and the land and its springtime lushness that he wept, uplifted with joy, salt tears streaking down his cheeks, dampening his willow armor, crying at the trees and their tender spring leaves and the birds singing in every thicket. The soft coo of the wood pigeons made Percival's heart yearn with fierce passion. But he didn't yet know what he was yearning for. But in his yearning, through the showers of light before him, he saw a flash of golden light hovering mid-air, a beauty that pierced his heart, made it crack. And the sound of his heart breaking carried on the wind. And a shadow whispered through the leaves, and Percival sat on his horse, reaching after the golden vision that had disappeared in the shifting of a cloud. And through the streaks of shadow, of pollen and light, two people on horseback came riding, riding, clad all in green with collars of gold and set with opals and emeralds. And their faces shone like a window lit from behind by the sun and the moon. And their eyes, too, shone like jewels. And they neither laughed nor frowned, but Percival sensed that inwardly, they were smiling, and he did not know it, but that night before him was Sir Peleus, and the lady was Nimue, the lady of the lake. Now when Percival beheld these two, he knew that they were fae, the fair folk, the spirits of the land, and all the beings that had ever lived there. So he quickly dismounted and kneeled down before them, setting his palms together in prayer. Lady Nimue of the lake smiled gently upon Sir Percival and said, Sir Percival, arise and tell me what do you do in these parts? Sir Percival arose and stood before her and said, Lady, I do not know how you know who I am, but I believe that you are fae and know many things, and I am here in search of adventure. So if you know of any that I might undertake for your sake, I pray that you tell me of it. Side note, we also might think of Lady Nimue as the Queen of Cups. So Lady Nimue, the Queen of Cups, says, If you desire adventure, I may have an adventure worthy for any knight to undertake. Keep traveling into these woods, and by and by you will behold a bird whose feathers shine as bright as gold. Follow that bird, and it will bring you to a place where you shall find someone in dire need of your aid. And then the lord and lady, the fae, the fairy folk were gone, and he traveled deeper into the woods as she had instructed. And eventually he did see the plumage of that golden bird, glistering in the branches, and as he drew nigh, the bird flew a little distance down the path, and then it lit on the ground until he followed it. And then when he'd come nigh to it again, it flew a distance further, and still he followed it. So it flew, and he followed, and it flew, and he followed for a very great while, until by and by the forest grew thin, and Sir Percival found himself in the open country, the like of which he had never seen. It was desolate, a barren waste of land, and often in the distance, far to the west, was an old castle in disrepair. As he rode towards the castle, he saw an elderly man wearing a crown, looking out over the water, swooning in exhaustion. 
But before Percival could reach him, the old man was taken inside by his attendants. Percival made his way towards the castle, and when he arrived, he was welcomed inside, and he found the old man and his court were preparing for their meager supper. Now this king was called King Petur, the fisher king, because his lands are located in the west by the sea that guards the land of the dead, and his people make their living through fishing. But he is also called the wounded king, because he does indeed have a wound to his groin that will not heal. He is also known as the sinner king because his wounds have come from sin conferred upon him and his lands by his own actions and also by the actions of his ancestors. Here's a little backstory for you. Once, long ago, sacred springs and wells throughout the land were tended by the well maidens were wise women and oracles, and they brought succor to weary travelers, serving them spring water from golden goblets and nourishment from their abundant lands. Today we might call these maidens nature spirits, spirits of the glades and springs, or at the very least we might consider the well maidens as priestesses and tenders of these holy spirits. But one day, an ancestor of the Fisher King, the evil King Amingons, came with his soldiers and for no other reason but his own gratification raped the maidens and stole their cups and destroyed their temples all throughout the country, dishonoring their hospitality and ruining their abundance. No sooner had he done so than the land dried up and withered and the springs became poisoned with lead the land turned crispy with drought, the air choked with fire smoke, the crops lighted with disease and poisons, and even the people of the land fell into depravity and moral corruption, stealing and hoarding and harming one another and turning a blind eye to those who suffered most. By dishonoring the well maidens, the warlords of the land cut the people off from their sacred connection to the earth, and thus to the life force itself. The balance of reciprocity between land and human was disrupted, and the curse of it rippled across time and space until everyone was affected, and forevermore must wander the wasteland until the grail is restored. Which brings us back to our Knight of Cups, Percival, sitting at the table next to the Fisher King, waiting for the supper of rotted grain, and salted fish, which was all the land could provide. As they waited for their supper, the maimed king told Sir Percival that he was once called the rich fisherman because of the abundance of his land and its life-giving waters. But look at me now, he said, withered and old, whimpering in pain, gray of face, Percival noticed that the Fisher King did indeed grimace and groan in pain. But our knight said nothing. They continued to sit in silence, the king staring at Percival expectantly. But still, young Percival said nothing because he wanted to impress the king but didn't know what to say. He didn't want to demonstrate his incompetence. So they sat there in silence and eventually a procession began. A procession, vivid as a dream, filled the room with light so that you could see the air swirling about in golden gusts as two children carrying silver candelabra entered the room. Then came a young man carrying a spear, still bloodied from the kill and dripping blood behind him. Then came a young maiden, dressed in white, carrying an ornate golden grail which she held to catch the blood from the spear before it dripped to the floor. Finally, another maiden followed at the end, carrying a silver platter full of fruits and meats and bread, still warm and fragrant. And Percival looked down at his own meager fare and the fare of the king, the gray salted fish, the moldy cabbage, and wondered why they didn't eat from the platter. 
but he said nothing. And the procession continued to the sound of bells and soft chimes. And it continued three times around the table. And as they walked, Percival was seized again with that strange longing. But when the procession ended, the dining hall emptied and fell silent and dark. So Percival retired to his bedchamber. When he woke, he found himself disheveled in a barren, rocky field by the same cliffs and hills and sea that had been there the night before, but now the castle was gone and he was alone. Not knowing what to do or where to go, having failed Lady Nimue's request to aid the Fisher King, Percival began to wander. First, in his wandering, he encountered the maiden of the white mule after he had been overtaken by a storm in the forest. She told him the mysterious light that he beheld in the forest of Arroy proceeded from the grail, but she did not tell him what the grail might be and said he did not deserve it. He had abandoned his mother, she told him, and the poor woman had died in grief after being abandoned by her only living son. Stricken by guilt and grief, Percival wandered now even deeper into the wood, where he came upon a hermit who fed him in exchange for his labor, and in the evenings the hermit explained the nature of the grail to him. Hermits often appear in these ancient tales to give wisdom and guidance. As in the tarot, the hermit teaches us to reconnect with our authentic self, to listen to our hearts, and make decisions based on the circumstances and compassion rather than the rules of some authority far away. While Percival was with the hermit, they explained that the grail was the light Percival had seen in the forest, and also it was the cup carried by the girl in the procession, and it contained within it that holy vessel, the elixir of love and redemption, and the grail called to him even now, and if he found it, he could restore the wasteland. Percival didn't completely understand how the grail could heal the wasteland, but he nevertheless decided to continue in his search of it. And as he left, the hermit gave him a parcel of food for his journey and told Percival, who sat astride his horse, Dear boy, remember the importance of asking the right questions. Percival nodded, but he was still too naive and ignorant to know what the hermit meant, and he was too embarrassed to ask. So he left and continued his wandering, haunted by his failure to attain the grail when it had been in his grasp. And he was haunted by his inability to heal the king and solve the quest of the Lady of the Lake. Percival wandered and wandered until on a wild and remote road he came upon a black girl riding a yellow mule dressed in the garments of a page. Side note, this quote-unquote black girl really does appear several times in the original text. It's only in some versions that Percival discovers that she is a he and is really a page in disguise. So there is this transitive gender element with this figure. And also, since race as we understand it hadn't been invented yet, it's difficult to know if the writers meant that the girl was black as in she had black skin or was black in the sense that they used color and other Parts of the Arthurian legends that we don't go over here. For instance, we encounter a red knight or the green knight or the white lady, which are all symbolically linked to color. The black girl could also be potentially something related to the land, since, for instance, the green knight is obviously referring to vegetation and the white lady is referring to ancestors who passed on to the other world or the world of the dead. Because at that time when they said white, they were actually referring to something more like shining or glowing. So it's possible that black could be referring to something like the black hills or the black soil or something else like that, which those things at the time were often referred to as black. So something pentacles-like. 
In any case, this girl, let us call her the Black Page, just to not have it sound so strange to modern ears, hollers at Percival, I won't greet you, knight, upon this road, because you do not deserve it. So, startled, Percival asks why he doesn't deserve to be greeted by her, though in his heart he did feel the grief and guilt at his failures. And the black page glowers at him and says, You went to the court of the maimed king. You saw the bleeding spear brought before you. You saw it pour forth three streams of blood, but you didn't ask the reason or the cause which anyone with even a lick of compassion would have done. If you had asked the main king what ailed him, he would have recovered his health and prosperity would have returned to the land. But now, because of you, there will always be war and famine and women left widowed, mothers and children going without food or comfort, all because of you. The directness of the page pierced Percival's ignorance, and he said, Now I understand. I must solve the mystery of the bleeding lance and find the grail. Will you show me where it is? Certainly not. You don't deserve it, the page replied. But I will show you the road. Percival searched along this road for a year and a day until once again he came upon the castle of the king, only this time it appeared on an island in the middle of a lake. And he crossed the bridge towards the castle's great towers and into the halls of the fisher king, who was now on his deathbed, his sheets starched with the blood from his wound, moaning through his dry lips, barely able to open his eyes. He was in so much pain. Percival stood over the once great king's bed and asked, Great king of the West, of these once abundant, well-watered lands, great fisher king, tell me, What ails you? The king looked at him, his eyes beginning to come back into focus. What ails you? Percival asked again. And the king pointed to the damp wound at his groin and said, I was struck by the bloodthirsty spear, the spear of my ancestors, and my wound will bleed until a knight with a whole heart, in care, retrieves the grail from its hiding place and pours its waters upon me. Retrieves it from where? Percival asked. But as soon as he did, the castle disappeared and he found himself on the road again, beginning his quest for the Holy Grail once again, which he will never find until his heart is whole. The end. But it's also beginning, our beginnings, since of course we are the night and the mission of healing our hearts, becoming relational and healing the wounds of colonial violence is ours as well. The Knight of Cups, when it appears in your reading, is bringing a cup that can heal through magical means. Now, I realize that the story that I've just told you is a rich one. And if you're like me, you'll probably want to discuss some of the story here in a group, since I feel like we need a collective mind to unpack that story. But also because the moral, or at least a moral of the story, is about relationality and collective wisdom. So for those of you who are in our coven, we'll be discussing this card and this story at our next Tarot Studio, which is the monthly discussion and practice sessions that go along with the coven. And just a reminder, too, that we've got the Queen of Cups, Chants, Prayer, and Invocations Workshop available for you now. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out more. In the meantime, some study questions I might suggest around this story are. How might the well maidens appear in a reading and what might they be referring to? What cards? Or what might they be referring to in your life? What does redemption and renewal mean according to the story? And where do those concepts of redemption and renewal appear in the tarot? 
Also, are these concepts that you agree with, why or why not? In the case of redemption, we might think of it as like reparations or amends, for instance, like in 12-step, recognizing that you have a problem that is out of your control, surrendering to a power greater than yourself to help you solve it, and endeavoring to live in integrity with what you know to be true and good. How might something like that apply in a career reading, for instance? or reading about making a big choice, how could we consider that redemptive quality of the the Knight of Cups in, in those kinds of readings? Renewal in this context might mean reconnecting with your purpose or with your authenticity or with your spiritual practices. What cards might represent the page pointing us towards the correct road to go down. I mean, I would think it would be the the page of pentacles, but I'd be interested in hearing what you all had to say about it. In this story, when the land becomes a wasteland, it's because it is treated as profane. That is, it's treated as not sacred, which is why it's died. What cards might indicate that something in our lives has not been treated as sacred? And what do the other cards in the reading point to as saying, these are the things that you need to do to heal this wound. Just some ideas for how you might go about navigating this myth as it pertains to your reading. Okay, last section, rituals. As we've seen This night, the Knight of Cups, is all about asking the right questions. Since the Court of Cups teaches us how to master the art of relationship, this night is teaching us how to ask the right questions in and about our relationships and listen deeply to the answers. As a tarot reader, it's important for me to practice with my clients helping them ask the right questions because Often the questions that we're asking actually lead us back into the swamp of despair before we even pull the cards. For example, let's say you're going to your oracle to ask something like, does so-and-so like me? Are they into me? Or what will happen with me and my relationship with so-and-so? And listen, girl, I've been there. I still ask these questions all the time in my own personal practice because I am human. It's human to ask questions like that. It's just sadly going to lead us back into the burning barn, which let's be honest, is also human. Anyhow, asking a question like, does so-and-so like me, while understandable and human, is already pointing you in the direction of supplication. It's already giving your power away. It's saying, I volunteer to be like Sleeping Beauty and just lay here waiting for true love's kiss If, in fact, they feel like showing up. Like, if you're asking the tarot, if someone is into you, you're doing it because their feelings for you are not clear. Because either they're they're literally not being clear, they're being unclear, they're saying one thing and doing another, or you are not able to read their signals accurately, which is a you problem. Meaning, if tarot tells you they're into you, it won't matter because you won't be able to trust that somatically in your body because there's a shift that needs to happen so that you could read the signals. What I'm getting at is if it was clear that they were into you, which is what we want when we're into someone, we would know. If we don't know why we're not getting that clarity, then that's really the question we should be asking. Because if we do ask, does so-and-so like me, if spirit answers, yes, they're into you. Let's say you get like ace of cups, fountain of love. You're all about that. Then what? I mean, it feels good to know that they like you, but you're still in the same situation as you were before. Either waiting for them to declare their feelings in a more obvious way, or with you finding the courage to be vulnerable and risk making your feelings more clear or asking them how they feel. So on the other hand, if spirit answers, no, they don't have feelings for you, 
I mean, let's be honest, friend. Are you really going to walk away and drop your aspirations towards romance just because a tarot reader told you to? (laughs) No, you are not. You'll probably just keep asking the cards until you get the answer you want. I mean, that's what I do. (laughs) A better question would be, how can I gain clarity about where I stand with X? How can I gain clarity about this situation? And if the Knight of Cups shows up, you know what the answer is, right? You know what the answer is after that story. Ask them. Ask the right questions of them. (laughs) Or look within to decide what is most important to you. If being with someone who is clear about how they feel about you is important to you, then your journey is less about knowing how they feel and more about developing your own capacity to hold the intense sensation of loving someone who is capable of loving you back. Mic drop. If it is important to you to feel loved, then your journey with the tarot is not about whether or not they are into you, but about how to develop the capacity to be with someone who is into you, because if they are really into you, you should know. In the Percival story, he learns to ask the right questions. The first question, what ails thee, is all about demonstrating genuine concern for other people's experience. Instead of prioritizing the way he appears to others, when he's like worried that he's going to look ignorant if he asks a question, which is actually a practice that distances us from other people because appearance is on the surface and true intimacy goes deeper. He has to learn to be relational with others by demonstrating his care for and curiosity about them by asking questions about their experiences, which is not an art that our civilization has mastered, let's be honest. The second question I actually left out of the story. Sorry about that, but it's in there. It's in some versions. He's supposed to ask the king, whom does the grail serve? I mean, that's a deep question because it's about that love or that abundance that is implied by the Holy Grail. Who is that for? Is it for the king Is it for our own pleasure? Is it to be vessels for love? Whom does the grail serve? Because Percival is in pursuit of the grail. The question actually is about him. Who does he serve in seeking the grail? What is he in service to in pursuit of the grail? And furthermore, since the king and therefore the whole nation is in pursuit of the grail, the question is for all of humanity— What are we all striving for? Are we pursuing the grail for gold and glory or for love? Because in the question, whom does the grail serve, is implied the answer. Is the grail serving you, the Knight of Cups, who are in pursuit of it? My sense is no. The grail, the holy cup, the fountain of life, is love, is a life force itself. The grail serves us by reminding us that we are in service to it. That is its service to us. Its service, the grail's service to us, is reminding us that we are in service to love. The goddess, the life force, the force of love as it flows through the ecosystem. If we serve the grail, then we create vital communities, healthy ecologies. If we seek the grail— In order to make it serve us, then we destroy our communities and the land on which we live. So inside the question, whom does the grail serve, is the question, what are you in service to? To what are you dedicating your life? What is your purpose? And those are magical questions because by asking them, the transformation has already begun. By asking yourself, what am I dedicating my life to? You have already taken your first step on the journey to find the grail. This is something I take very seriously in my work with my clients, though sometimes I don't think they realize it until later on. 
But when we work together, we call the spirits in. And in the presence of spirit, we seek to ask the right questions. And when we ask the right questions, we already step across the threshold to where the answer resides. So if this card comes up for you, I suggest this ritual. Light a candle, call your spirits in, pull three cards and lay them face down before you. Before you turn the cards over, in your journal at the top of your paper, write your question, any question you like. But then beneath it, rephrase the question multiple times in different ways. And as you do this, consider how you can ask the question in a way that highlights your curiosity about your situation, your compassion for yourself and others, And in ways that are in service to your values and the things you care about most. Like, how do you want to be living your life? So let's say your question was, should I go back to grad school? You might explore that inquiry by asking a question based on curiosity. What is motivating my desire to continue my education? Or you might phrase that question in relation to compassion. How can I build confidence in my choices? In that case, compassion for yourself. Or let's say you rephrase the question based on your values, your desires, your purpose. Help me recognize the next best step to take in order to help preserve old growth for us, if that was like your educational goal, for instance. You see what I did there? I asked about whether or not you should return to grad school in three different ways. And you can see how by asking those three different ways, what is motivating my desire? How can I build confidence in this choice? How do I recognize the next best step to take? You're going to get different answers. And those answers will lead you in the right direction if you ask the right questions. So once you've done that, turn the cards over and ask your questions and see how the answer changes depending on the question, even if the cards stay the same. And then notice which gave you the most empowering and inspiring answer. Turn that question into a prayer, which will usually start with something like, may I, may I, recognize the next best step to take or help me recognize or thank you spirit for helping me recognize thank you spirit for helping me inspire and support the listeners of our podcast and building their confidence in their own magic so that together we can re-enchant the world victory to the goddess listeners thank you so much for joining us today we adore you hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed creating it for you we want to give a shout out to listener mealy 12 who left a comment on our itunes page saying since this podcast was recommended to me a few months ago i have listened to it just about every day i have a practice of pulling a tarot card daily in the morning as i'm newer to tarot During my commute, I listened to the Between the Worlds episode that corresponds with the card I pulled that day. It's always meaningful. I love that different aspects of each card are discussed. The show fills my ears, minds, and heart with magical, positive vibes on my way to work. Perfect way to start the day. Don't stop making the show. Mealy12, thank you so much. We are so glad to join you on your morning commute. And to all of you who've left a comment or five-star rating, thank you so much. We love to feel that connection with you and are so grateful for everyone who takes the time to reach out to us or share our work with your other magical friends. So stay tuned for next time when we will be discussing the Queen of Cups with Diana Rivera, PhD, an expert in the psychology of creativity. You're going to love it. We can't wait to share it with you. So hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode so that you can stay tuned. And in the meantime, we will see you, beloved listeners, between the worlds. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. 
Subscribers to our Weird Circle at the Jupiter level get workshops, community, bonus content, and magical support throughout the year. We really do hope that you join us. In the meantime, if you love our content and want to keep us on the air, please do take a moment to give us five stars or leave us a sweet review on iTunes or share your favorite moments from the podcast on social media. Truly, all of it makes a huge difference to us. You can tag me at Oracle Valet or at Between the Worlds Podcast. Not only does your support help keep us on the air, it helps baby witches who really need this content know how to find their way to us between the worlds. So thank you for being here and thank you for helping other people find their way here as well. This podcast is hosted by Amanda Yates Garcia and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our icon was created by Maria Minnis, aka Tiny Parsnip, and our graphic design is by Leah Hayes. Thanks for flying with us.